0: If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Whenever you have a significant position that you want to fulfill or fill, like the position of a CEO who runs a company or uh, the position of a principal who runs a school or the position of a president who runs, um, you know, a country, you know, one of the main things that people could be looking for or should be looking for in that is, you know, is this person qualified? Do they meet the qualifications, uh, for that? And, um, You should be looking for the most qualified people to fill uh, those very important positions. And if someone's not qualified, then that's not someone who should take on that CEO role or that principal role or that president role. And, you know, I bring this up because the initial Jewish recipients of this letter, you know, last chapter at the end of chapter 14, or at the end of chapter 4, sorry, in verse 14, the author tells us that uh, Jesus is a great high priest. And when these initial Jewish readers would have read that, they would have thought, well, wait a second, we got a big problem with that statement. And the reason that they would have a big problem with that statement is because they would have been very familiar with the uh, qualifications that the high priest had to have according to the book of Leviticus. And really their issue would be, hey, according to what we know, Jesus does not meet those qualifications. And so in their minds, Jesus cannot fill the position of high priest because they would have believed he didn't meet the qualifications to be a high priest. Well, the author knows that his Jewish audience would have uh, responded this way. And so he starts chapter five with wanting to show that Jesus does meet all the qualifications there are for The high priest. And so, right after introducing this wonderful truth that we saw at the end of chapter four last week about Jesus being the great high priest, now he moves straight into the fact that these are qualifications that are necessary to be high priest and Jesus meets. All of those qualifications. And so that's what we're going to see here in the first 10 verses of chapter 5 this morning. In verses 1 through 4, the author is going to share with us what the actual qualifications are in order for anyone to take on this role of high priest. And then in verses 5 through 10, the author is going to show us how Jesus meets each one of those qualifications. Now, the main point of these first 10 verses is to show us that Jesus does meet the qualifications of the high priest. And since he does, he is able to be your high priest and my high priest. Now, not only does Jesus meet the qualifications of a high priest, but he's also greater in qualifications than any other high priest ever to take on that role. Now in the first four verses of chapter 5 where the author reveals the qualifications for being a high priest, he speaks about three different important areas of qualifications in order to do that. The first area of qualification is in the appointment of the high priest. And so uh, the author is going to show us how the high priest was appointed in order to meet the qualifications for that. The second area of qualification is in the work Of the high priest. And so the author is going to reveal to us what work the high priest had to be qualified to do in order to meet that role. And the third area of qualification is in the identification of the high priest with the people that he was serving. So the author is going to tell us how the high priest had to identify with the people. And then in verses 5 through 10, the author is going to reveal how Jesus meets. All three of these different areas of qualifications that Jesus meets the area of appointment, work, and also identification. Now, in the next few chapters, the author is going to get into a lot of details about the specifics of how Jesus meets these different qualifications in these different areas. But really, in these first 10 verses, the author's main purpose is just to show Jesus does meet the qualifications, and he doesn't get into a lot of details to back that up. He just kind of lays it out generally, and then in the coming chapters, he's going to get much more specific about those things. And so this morning we are going to kind of see these qualifications in a more general way. Uh, And then when we get to chapter 7, 8, and 9, we'll look at these things in a much more specific way. We'll see the appointment and the work and the identification of Jesus as high priest. Uh, And I understand that as I briefly share on some of these things this morning, and as I highlight some of the things that the author says, you're going to have questions. You may we think, well, wait a second. You know, how does that work? And and who is this individual that's connected with Jesus? And there's going to be different things that that I realize that it's going to bring questions about the specifics of. Well, I want to know more about how Jesus meets this qualification, and I'm just going to have to say. Because the author is going to do that in chapter 7, 8, and 9, I'm just going to ask you to be patient. We're not going to get ahead of ourselves. We're just going to look at the fact that the general qualifications are here in chapter 5 and the specifics are coming. Uh, And so understand those questions will be answered, but not all of them will be answered this morning. Now, I'm going to approach the 10 verses we're going to look at this morning a little bit differently than I usually do. Typically, I'll just start in verse 1, and we'll work our way to verse 10. But what I'm going to do differently this morning is explain the first area of qualification that a high priest was supposed to have, and that is in the area of appointment. And instead of going on to the second area and the third area, which would be the progression that the author writes it, we're going to jump down and see how Jesus meets that qualification. And then we'll come back to the second qualification and then jump down to see how Jesus meets that and do the same thing for the third. And I hope that doing that will just kind of help you better understand it because we'll go straight from, you know, talking about the qualification to then looking at how Jesus meets it. Uh, And so we're just going to approach it a little bit differently uh, with that. And then after each Qualification. And, you know, some of this you might be thinking, you know, well, what does this have to do with me today? And I'm just going to be sharing just some practical uh, encouragements for us today as we look at these different qualifications. And we'll have three of those uh, by the time that we're done this morning. And so let's start by reading the first four verses. And these first four verses cover all three of the qualifications uh, that a person had to meet in order to be high priest. And then we'll focus on the first one. So verses one through four of chapter five says this. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So the author starts here in verse 1 and finishes in verse 4, sharing with us the first area of qualification, which is the appointment of the high priest. And so in the beginning of verse 1, we're told, For every high priest taken from among men... Is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. And then in verse 4, and no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. And so here we have two important things connected to this first qualification uh, in the appointment of the high priest. And the first thing is that the high priest was taken from among men and was appointed for men in things pertaining to God. And so one of just a practical qualification was the high priest had to be a man. God chose a man to represent mankind because ultimately one of the things of the high priest was it was this mediator between God and man. And God said, you know what, I want a man to do that. And so uh, that was one qualification. If you weren't a man, then you could not be high priest. The second important qualification about the appointment of the high priest is No man took this honor to himself, but he received the position of high priest because he was called by God just as Aaron was. And so what this is saying is that the position of the high priest was not, was not something that you could aspire to, was not something that you could campaign for. It's not like you could just say, hey, you know what? I really want this. And so I'm going to go after it. You know, if back in that day, the Jews had a career day for their young men, you know, the high priest role would not be on the list of things that they could aspire to do because it wasn't something that if you just wanted, you could have. It was a position that could only be given by God. You had to be called and appointed by God in order to receive this position of high priest. And it says, just as Aaron was, because Aaron was called and appointed to God. He was the very first high priest. Now, the Bible tells us that God called and appointed the tribe of Levi. There are 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of the sons is Levi. And God says, you know what? I am choosing the tribe of Levi to be my priestly tribe which means the only ones who can be uh, priests in the system that God has established are people who come from that tribe. So if you come from uh, any of the other 11 tribes, then you're automatically not qualified to be a priest. But to be high priest, the qualifications got even more specific. Now, obviously, you would have to be from the tribe of Levi, but it went even deeper than that. You had to be a firstborn descendant of Aaron, the first high priest. Priest. So Moses and Aaron, they're both from the tribe of Levi, and when God first called and appointed Aaron to be the first high priest, he also established how he was going to have each high priest come after Aaron, and it was through Aaron's firstborn son, and then his firstborn son, and then his firstborn son, and so it was this lineage of firstborn sons all the way back to Aaron, and those were the only people who could be high priest. So if you were just from the tribe of Levi, wasn't good enough. If you were just a son of Aaron but not the firstborn, wasn't good enough. You had to be connected to the lineage of firstborn sons of Aaron. So when it came to the appointment of the high priest, there are these two qualifications that had to be met. You had to be a man and you had to be called and appointed by God to this position of high priest. You could not Call or appoint yourself to that position. Now, there were a couple times in the Old Testament where men tried to appoint themselves to the role or function of the high priest. And it did not go well for them. God dealt with them very harshly for it. And really that sent a clear message that only the people that God has called and that God has appointed can have this role. And anyone else who tries are going to be in big trouble. One of those instances was a man by the name of Korah, and he did not like the fact that uh, Aaron was given this role of high priest, and he felt like Aaron was being exalted above all others, and he kind of wanted that, and he started this rebellion of people, and they, they come against Moses and Aaron, and ultimately Moses just says, you know what, we'll let God let everybody know who his high priest is, and God does it in a powerful, clear way, he opens up the earth, and Korah and all those rebelling with him get swallowed alive in there and killed, and everybody knows that's not the high priest. Aaron is the high priest that God has called and that God has appointed Now, King Saul, he also tried to function in this priestly role that he should not have done. He offers a burnt offering to the Lord, which was something that only the priests were meant to do. And God responded by rejecting Saul and all of his descendants from being king over Israel any longer. King Uzziah, he tried to function in the role of priest. He goes into the temple and he offers or tries to offer incense uh, on the uh, altar of incense and God responds by striking him with leprosy. He loses his kingdom and he has leprosy to the day that he dies. So the high priestly role was not something that you could take on yourself and all those who tried. God judged very Uh, openly so people could recognize that and also very severely to understand how important it was to God that only people called and appointed by him would take on that role. And the way that God called and appointed the high priest at that time was by having all those who were uh, in the lineage of Aaron as firstborn sons. So this is the first area of qualifications that you know, someone had to meet in order to be a high priest in this area of appointment. you got to be a man, and you got to be called and appointed by God. And so now we're going to jump down to verses 5 and 6, and we're going to see what the author says about how Jesus meets this qualification. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, "'You are my son.'" Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the author has just made very clear in verse five that you cannot make yourself high priest. You can only be high priest if you are called and appointed by God. And he goes right into verse five, making it very clear hey, Jesus meets the qualifications for that because Jesus did not glorify himself to make himself high priest. Jesus didn't do that. He he wasn't someone who said, well, I'm just going to make myself high priest. No. The Father called and appointed Jesus and placed him in that role. And to help prove this point, the author quotes two different Psalms. He quotes Psalm two seven, which says, "You are my Son; today I have begotten you." And he also quotes Psalm one ten four, which says, "You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek." Now, the point the author is making is just as much as Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, which none of these uh, people reading would have denied, that would say, well, clearly God declared Jesus to be the Son of God. And here's just one instance in Psalm 2-7, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. The author is wanting them to see just as much as Jesus was declared to be the Son, He was also declared to be high priest. Psalm 110-4 When the father says, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the author wants to make real clear, hey, in this first area of appointment, Jesus meets the qualifications for that. Jesus left the throne in heaven and became a man. So he meets the qualifications that were necessary of you gotta be a man in order to be high priest. And Jesus did not appoint himself to that position, but he was appointed and called by God, and so he meets the qualifications for that as well. But here is where the Jewish reader would object. They say, well, "Wait a second, we know our Bibles." You know, we read the Torah. We know Leviticus. We know what is required in order for someone to be high priest. We know that they got to come from the tribe of Levi, and we know that they have to be in the lineage of Aaron through the firstborn sons. And we know this about Jesus. He's from the tribe of Judah. He is not connected to Aaron's lineage at all. And so there's no way that Jesus can be high priest because he does not meet the uh, tribe or the lineage requirements in order for that to happen. So the logical question would be, how in the world can Jesus be high priest if he does not meet those qualifications? He's from the wrong tribe and the wrong lineage. Well, the author just kind of hints at the answer to this question, because he's going to go into great detail answering this question in chapter 7, but notice what he says. He's quoting, he's not just saying something, he's quoting Psalm 110.4, and in this psalm we get kind of a hint as to what he's going to really uh, unpackage for us uh, in a couple chapters, but um, Psalm 110.4 tells us that the Father called Jesus a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is the the gentleman that we're going to get into great detail with. It's one of my favorite uh, characters in the Old Testament. It's a fascinating character that we see in the book of Genesis chapter 14. We're told that he is the king of Salem, which is later called Jerusalem. Uh, he is a priest of God Most High, and he blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth of all That he has. So Melchizedek was this high priest of God Most High, and there's lots of details that we're gonna look at in chapter seven. But for right now, I want you to note the reason that Jesus can be a high priest, even though he's not from the tribe of Levi, even though he's not from the lineage of Aaron, is because Jesus' priesthood is from a different order than the Levitical priesthood. It's from a different order than the Aaronic priesthood. Jesus, notice, is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of Aaron. And the author gives us a little hint as to why the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek is actually even greater than the priesthood according to the order of Aaron. He says, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, wait a second. There is no priest forever in the order of Aaron. Aaron and all the priests after them, they died. None of them had a priesthood forever. And so we're going to get into this when we get to chapter 7. But he's just kind of giving us a hint of, look, not only is Jesus a priest because he's from a different order, but the different order that he's from is even greater because it's an eternal order versus the temporary uh, order that we have with Aaron's Lineage. So Jesus does meet the qualifications for the appointment of the high priest. He was a man. He was called and appointed by God. And if your mind's starting to think, man, I want to know more about this Melchizedek guy, you know what, we're going to get a lot of him in a, in a couple chapters, so just wait for that. But the original readers of this letter, I want you to realize, they don't have a problem with understanding their need for a high priest. That, that wasn't their issue at all. Their issue was, I don't know if I can believe that Jesus is qualified to be my high priest. So so they recognize, I need a high priest, I'm just not sure Jesus is the guy. And so that's why the author is wanting to make really clear, hey, Jesus meets the qualifications for high priest. He is your high priest. Priest. And this leads to the first practical encouragement. As I shared with each one of these things, I just want to throw out kind of a practical encouragement for us today. And I think one of those is that most people today, you know, that don't have a background in Judaism, that aren't really familiar with high priests, you know, we have a very different problem than the initial recipients. Of this letter, You know, their problem wasn't that, you know, they didn't think they needed a high priest. Their problem was that they didn't think Jesus was the one that met the qualifications. But for us today, it's a bigger problem. We don't believe we need a high priest at all. So we're not even looking to Jesus or anybody. It's like, hey, I don't need a high priest. Many people today, they don't think they need someone to mediate between them and God, which is what the high priest did. They don't think they need someone to sacrifice for their sin, to atone for it, which is what the high priest did. And a common thought among people today is that, you know, they can get to God on their own. You know, when someone says, you know what, I'm going to follow my own way to God, or I'm going to get to heaven through my own works or efforts. You know, ultimately what they're declaring without probably even realizing it is, I'm going to be my own high priest. I'm going to be the one that mediates between me and God. I'm going to be the one that ultimately offers the sacrifice of my works in order to somehow obtain salvation between myself and God. And what they're ultimately saying is, you know what? I am not going to accept God's ordained high priest that he has offered to me through Jesus Christ. I'm going to be my own. You know what, when someone dies trying to be their own high priest, the consequences of that is worse than what happened to Saul who tried to take on that role, worse than what happened to Korah who tried to take on that role, worse than what happened to Uzziah. They are going to spend all eternity in hell. David Guzik wrote this, It is great arrogance to think we can approach God on our own without a priest But it is great superstition to think we need any other priest other than Jesus Christ himself. God has provided a mediator, a priest, and we must avail ourselves of the priest God has provided. Now there's another problem that people have, because not everybody is in this boat of like, I don't need a high priest, I'll be my own high priest. There are those who think, yes, I do need a high priest. I do need someone to mediate on my behalf. I do need someone to sacrifice for me, and I'm looking for that. And you have those who are looking for you know, Catholic priest to, to do that for them, or you have people who are looking for some other person in kind of that priestly type of role, who they think, I need them in order to connect me with God. I need them to do something in order to make me right with God. And so there's a lot of people who are looking for that kind of high priestly person, but the problem is they're looking for the person in the wrong place because there's only one high priest that God has ordained and established for us to need, who is the one mediator between us and God, who is the one who sacrificed. And we don't need to look to any other man or woman or person to do that for us. We only need to look to Jesus Christ to do that. Uh, and this is something that we should always be focused on. So the first area of qualifications that the high priest had to meet is the appointment of the high priest. And the second area of qualification that the high priest had to make it had to do with the work of the high priest. And we see those qualifications back uh, at the end of uh, verse 1 and verse 3, which says this. That he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. So the main work that the high priest did was to offer gifts and sacrifices unto God on behalf of the people and on behalf of themselves. Now, the high priest, you know, we kind of talked last week about one of the most important sacrifices, but there were a lot of different gifts and sacrifices that the Old Testament says that the high priest was meant to offer. We have burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings and guilt offerings, and each one of those had a specific guidelines and specific rituals that you were meant to do in order to fulfill them the way that God had ordained them to be fulfilled. And let's just say, it would be a lot of work. In order to do any of these things, it would take hours and hours of hard work, especially slaughtering animals and all the things that they had to go with it. And so, you know, this is labeled work because it was work that these high priests had to do. But the most important sacrifice of all, you know, more important than any other one, was the sacrifice that the high priest made only one time a year, and it was a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the nation of Israel on the Day of Atonement. But before the high priest could make that super important sacrifice for the sins of the nation, he had to first sacrifice for his own sins. Why? Because he was a sinner. And so he had to deal with his own sins before he tried to represent God uh, for the people and atone for their sin. And this is why verse 3 tells us, He is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And this is something that's important to remember of everyone from Aaron through that whole lineage were sinful men. And when they offered sacrifices for others, they had to first do it for themselves because they were all sinful. So the qualifications of the work of the high priest was they offered gifts and they offered sacrifices unto God on behalf of the people and also on behalf of themselves. Well, now the author is going to reveal how Jesus meets those qualifications in verses 9 and 10. And let's see what he tells us in those verses. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus meets the qualifications for the work of the high priest because Jesus offered gifts to the Father he offered the most important sacrifice of all to the Father. And in chapter 9, once again, remember the, the author is just kind of throwing out this general little thing. And in chapter 9, he's going to go into all sorts of details of you know contrasting the, the different sacrifices that the high priest made versus what Jesus did and why Jesus is so much greater. But here he's just wanting to build this case of Jesus does meet this qualification as someone who did the proper work. Work as a high priest. And the first hint as to why Jesus' sacrifice or work is greater uh, is seen here in um, verses 9 and 10. One is because Jesus is perfect. You know, all the other high priests were sinners. Jesus was not a sinner. And so he never actually had to offer a sacrifice for himself, he actually offered himself as a sacrifice for the entire world. And when we get to chapter 9, we'll look at how powerful that actually is. So he is perfect, which makes him greater. Uh, and the second hint as to why Jesus is a greater high priest is because his sacrifice is eternal. He is the author of eternal salvation. And this is another very important thing to understand is because guess what? Every single year, the Day of Atonement came. And you might say, well, why did it just come once? And then the sins were atoned for, and then we just stopped. Well, because it was a temporary atonement. It had to be atoned for every single year. And so, hey, another year has passed. That last atonement, it's temporary. It didn't last. We need a new one if you want to have this year's sins atoned for as well. And so Jesus is greater. His sacrifice is greater because it's permanent and it's eternal. He sacrificed himself once And for all, he never has to go back to the cross because his sacrifice was enough and lasts for all eternity. So not only does Jesus meet the qualifications for the work of the high priest, he exceeds the qualifications for the work of the high priest, which makes him far greater than any other high priest. Now, something interesting to note is that in verse 9, Jesus is called the author of eternal salvation. That he is the one responsible for writing, if you want to use that same kind of uh, illustration or making eternal salvation possible because he gave his life for us. And this leads me to the second practical encouragement that I want to share this morning for us today. And I think a problem that, that many people have in our, our day-to-day is that they want to be the author of their own salvation. Now, not only do they want to save themselves, but they want to write how it is that they can save themselves. They want to be the ones to write what is right and what is wrong, what is sinful and what is not. And so, not only do they want to save themselves, they want to, you know, kind of define what's a problem in their life so that, you know, they can make themselves basically better than they really are. And if you look at all the ways in which people try to save themselves, There'd be a lot of different books of salvation and a lot of different authors. But here's the reality. There's only one true author of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who makes salvation from our sins possible. And anyone else who's trying to be the author of their own salvation, they have an ending to their book that they think is going to happen. And the ending that they think is going to happen is, ooh, I'm going to be right with God. I'm going to go to heaven. My sins are going to be forgiven. But the problem is, the ending of their book is going to be quite different from the one that they're writing because they're not the author. God says, I don't accept you as the author. Jesus is the author. You rejected him as your author. So your ending, which you think is going to be heaven and salvation, is actually be uh, hell and damnation. And this is why it's so problematic when people try to be the author of their own salvation. But you know what as Christians you say well yeah we recognize we're not the author of our own salvation because if we didn't we wouldn't be Christians to begin with but you know what Jesus is also the author of our sanctification. And I think sometimes, you know, we say, yeah, Jesus, you're the author of salvation. You made that possible. But I'm going to try to be the author of my own sanctification. I'm going to try to sanctify myself. And I, and I want to kind of determine how that works and what that looks like and, and what's right and wrong and, and how I do that. And we need to recognize, no, no, no. Jesus is not only the author of salvation, he's the author of sanctification. And as believers, we need to be careful not to try and take that onto ourself and be something that God has not called us to be. We are not that author. We need to trust Jesus in that. So the first area of qualification that the high priest had to meet was in the area of appointment. The second is in the area of work. And the final area is in the identification that the high priest had to have with the people. And we see this qualification in verse 2. It says this, He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and go astray, since he himself is also subject to weaknesses. One of the requirements of the high priest was he was meant to identify with those that he was ultimately serving that he was representing, that he was mediating for, that he was sacrificing on behalf of. And the way that he would identify with the people, were told is to have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. So as a high priest, you know, offered burnt offering and grain offering and peace offering and guilt offering, he was to do all of the things that he was meant to do with compassion towards those he was making these offerings for. Now, something I I think is important to think about and maybe try to to picture in your mind, and I'll put a picture up here maybe even to help you with that, is when a person came to make a burnt offering, and a burnt offering was for their own personal sin, and so when we talk about the Day of Atonement, the high priest is, is sacrificing for the sin of the entire nation. But the burnt offering is you coming uh, to the priest and you yourself have sin that you want to deal with and what you were required to do is bring a male animal without blemish and obviously you can see the connection to Jesus being the man who is sinless but then you would have to place your hand on the head of that animal and, and as you did that, it was to signify that this animal was dying in your place that this animal's death was atoning for your personal sin. And it was the custom at that time when this person would place their hand on the animal and the priest is there ready to inspect the animal and make sure this is a, a male without blemish, that this person, as they placed their hand on this animal's head, you know, they were the custom where they would aloud start to confess their sin unto God. And God wanted his priests who were standing next to these people, listening to them confess their sin, to be priests who had compassion on these individuals. He did not want priests who were indifferent to the people and their sin. He didn't want priests who were thinking indifferent thoughts like, man, can't this person hurry up? I got so many more sacrifices to make today. I mean, come on. Yeah, let's get, let's get going here. Yes, I know you did that sin, but let's move along He also didn't want priests who were judgmental to the people in their sin. Oh, I can't believe that guy did that. He wanted someone who would be compassionate. And one of the reasons they should be compassionate is because they were also subject to weakness, just like every other person who was coming to them for these sacrifices. So when it came to the identification that the high priest would have with the people, there's really one main requirement. And that requirement was that they would do what they did with compassion. Compassion connected with a knowledge that they also had the same weaknesses as those they were serving. And hopefully that knowledge would help cause them to be compassionate Because that's typically how it is. If you're judgmental, you're not compassionate. If you're indifferent, you're not compassionate. If you don't recognize that, you know, hey, I have those same sins, then that's kind of where you become. You become that judgmental, indifferent person. Well, now the author tells us how Jesus meets this qualification for identifying with the people in verses 7 and 8. He says, Who in the days of his flesh... When he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In these verses, the author is showing us how Jesus meets this qualification of being to, able to identify with the people, and right at first you think, well, well, how is he doing that? Well, he's doing that by reminding us of a very specific moment in the earthly life of Jesus. When the author says, who in the days of his flesh, he's referring to when Jesus was here on this earth as a man. And when the author says, when he offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, he's referring to The moment that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, that moment where he literally was sweating drops of blood, that moment of prayer that was so intense. And the reason the author brings up this particular moment in Jesus' life is because it reveals the struggle that Jesus had in his humanity to obey the Father. You see, one of the greatest weaknesses that we have as believers is the weakness to obey God. I mean, that's really, if you can just sum it all up, that's our big problem. We need to obey what God has commanded us to do, and anything that we don't do, that God commands us to do, is a sin, and we have this problem. We have this weakness. We have this sinful flesh. We are, uh, struggle with being obedient. And one of the greatest battles that you see in Jesus' life and his obedience to the Father is there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we hear this prayer of Jesus, and I want you to note the prayer. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew what he was about to suffer on the cross. He knew not only what he was going to suffer physically, but he also knew what was going to come spiritually. He knew that in order to obey the Father, he had to go to the cross, he had to take the sin of the world, he had to take the judgment of the Father. He knew these things were coming. And in his humanity, he struggled with wanting to go through with that, with having to deal with all of that suffering. And that's why he says, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away. Father, if there's another way to redeem mankind, if there's another way to pay for the sin of the world, if there's another way besides me going through the suffering of the cross, the suffering of taking the sin of the world, the suffering of the judgment of Almighty God on me, if there's another way, let this cup pass. See, Jesus understood the difficulty of obeying God. But there's a big difference between Jesus and us. Jesus understands the difficulty, we understand the difficulty, but the difference is Jesus never disobeyed. He he experienced how hard it is to obey, but he always chose to obey, where we experience how hard it is to obey, and we often choose to disobey. You see, the beginning of Jesus' prayer in the garden shows the difficulty of obedience to the Father. If it's your will, take this cup away from me. But the end of the prayer shows, even though it's difficult... Jesus was still obedient. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Yes, that's ultimately the statement of obedience. Lord, I don't like this path. I don't like this thing. I don't want to do this, but you know what? It's not about me. Not my will, but yours be done. Since you say I should do it, I am going to choose to obey you. And that is what Jesus does. In the verse eight, the author of Hebrews shares with us a fascinating thing. Notice what he says about Jesus' obedience. Though Jesus was a son, speaking of God, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. The author tells us Jesus learned obedience. And the way that Jesus learned obedience was through the things which he suffered. Now this is a fascinating statement because we don't typically think of Jesus learning anything. Well, wait a second, Jesus God, and God knows everything. But you know what? When we hear the phrase learned obedience, we can also have a very wrong idea of what the author is saying. Because typically, if, if we use the term learned obedience, we often think of children. Children who are disobedient, who need to learn obedience. And all of us who have kids, or all of us who were kids, you know, we understand that. Yeah, they're a little disobedient, Children and as parents, we have to train them and teach them how to become obedient. But that is not what the author means when he says that Jesus learned obedience. He's not saying, well, Jesus was disobedient and all of a sudden he finally learned how to obey and it was so great when that happened. Jesus was always obedient. Notice the author tells us Jesus learned obedience how? By the things which he suffered. Jesus didn't learn the meaning of obedience. He didn't learn how to obey. He knew that because he knew everything. Notice that Jesus learned what it was like to experience obedience through suffering. You see, something interesting to consider is that something that God enthroned in heaven does not experience is obedience. As he's on his throne, guess what? Everyone obeys him. He obeys no one. And if he was obeying someone else, he wouldn't be God. So Here's the reality of God doesn't obey anyone on his throne. And so how is it that he could ever experience obedience? Well, it was only because Jesus humbled himself, left the throne, became a man, and subject himself to obedience to the Father. And through that, he experienced obedience that he would have never experienced on the throne. And one of the most difficult moments in Jesus' experience of obedience started in the Garden of Gethsemane. Started when he was sweating drops of blood. Started when, you know what, this is the night that I'm arrested. This is when it's all going to happen. And that continued through the beatings and the crown of thorns and the pulling out of his beard and the crucifixion and taking on the sin of the world and the judgment of the Father. And since Jesus willingly went through all of that horrible suffering in obedience to the Father, he learned what it was like to experience obedience through something super difficult. You see, where obedience is truly learned is when something is difficult. If I were to tell you, hey, you know what, I have two obedient daughters and I can prove it. And I'd say, hey, Scarlett and Eden, come up here, eat these two bowls of ice cream. And they eat those two bowls of ice cream, and I say, see, look at how obedient they are. You would think, that's a horrible test for obedience. Let's ask them to clean the whole house and see what they do, because when it's more difficult, it shows whether the person is truly obedient. Jesus suffered through the most difficult thing possible, which showed his great obedience to the Father. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, Obedience is a trade to which a man must be apprenticed until he has learned it, for it is not to be known in any other way. Even our blessed Lord could not have fully learned obedience by the observation in others of such an obedience as he had personally to render, for there was no one from whom he could thus learn. Another reason that the author brings up this moment of suffering in Jesus' life is because really this is the moment that declares his high priestly role more clearly than any other. As he's there praying and interceding, that's one of the most important roles of the high priest, but the by far the most important role of all is the sacrifice. And so the the time in the garden leading to the time on the cross, those are two of the most important events in the life of Jesus that clearly demonstrate the high priestly role that he demonstrated for us that we'll get into more detail in chapter 9. And those two things showed the experience that Jesus discovered about obedience. And because Jesus experienced that difficulty, it enables him to identify with how difficult it is for you and I to obey. It helps us, helps him to be compassionate towards us and all of our weaknesses when it comes to obedience. And that leads me to the third practical encouragement I want to share for us today. We need to know that our high priest is a compassionate high priest. And I think that's a big struggle that we often have, especially in our weaknesses, especially as we fail, because sadly, we are not often that way towards others. We are often those indifferent, judgmental people when we see other people in their weaknesses and their failures and their sin. And so we kind of think, you know what, that's the way that God's gonna deal with me. I'm gonna you know, come to him with this failure, this weakness, this lack of obedience, and I'm not gonna find any compassion from my high priest. He's gonna be indifferent or maybe even worse, judgmental and so I'm just going to stay away from him. I'm not going to come to him. As we saw that wonderful encouragement last week to come boldly to the throne of grace where he might find mercy and help in time of need, we often say, you know what, I'm not going anywhere near the throne of grace because I don't think there's compassion waiting there for me and so we need to be convinced of this reality that no, Jesus is our compassionate high priest and we should come to him recognizing we will receive compassion, we will receive mercy, we will receive forgiveness if we'll just be open and honest to, hey, we have failed you, we ask for forgiveness, we want to repent and recognize that you have a high priest who is not going to be indifferent to what you're going through, he's not going to be judgmental to what you're going through, he knows how hard it is to be obedient and he is compassionate to you and to me. But you know what, even more importantly than that, is he never disobeyed. And so, one of the biggest things that we need as Christians is Lord, I want to be more obedient. Well, who better to come to than the one who never disobeyed? He's the high priest who not only is compassionate when we disobey, but he's the high priest who can enable us and help us to be those men and women who become obedient followers of Jesus. And I want to encourage you with one other practical thing. When you're seeing someone else struggling with a weakness, when you see someone else who has some sin in their life, be compassionate to them. They don't need your indifference. They don't need your judgmental attitude. They need compassion. And I'm convinced that you would prefer when you were that person, because you will be, We all have weaknesses. We all have sins. We're all going to be in that position at some point in time. You're going to prefer that the people around you who catch you in those things respond to you with compassion, not indifference and not in judgment. And so let's become more like our high priest. When we see people in that way, we have compassion on them. You know, I love this phrase that we see throughout the Gospels. Jesus had compassion on them. For they were sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had compassion when people had illnesses and and weaknesses and failures and demon possession. And he just was a God full of compassion when he saw needs of people around him. And I think it's a a sad statement for us when we're just indifferent and hard-hearted and judgmental as we look at the world around us with all these people with issues and say, you know what, I want the heart of God. And the heart of God loves people. The heart of God is compassionate towards people. The heart of God wants to reach people and that should be the heart that we pray he would help us have as well. So in these first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter five, we see that Jesus meets these three areas of qualifications that were necessary for anyone to be a high priest. He was a 100% man He was called and appointed by God. He did not appoint himself. And so he meets the qualifications of the appointment of the high priest. He offered gifts and sacrifices uh, to God on behalf of not just the nation of Israel, but the entire world. And so he meets the qualifications for the work of the high priest. And he has compassion on us. And he knows the difficulty of obeying God, but he always was obedient and can help us be that as well. And so he meets the qualifications concerning identification with those he is high priest over. Jesus is more qualified to be our high priest than even the qualifications of the Old Testament actually required. And to his initial readers and to us today, we should accept the reality that he is our great high priest and that should be encouraging to us. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we have this great high priest in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I just pray for each one of us that we would get a deeper and greater understanding of how significant that is how important that is to our personal life as we look at more and more details in the coming chapters in the next coming weeks and months, Lord, that you would just open our mind and open our heart to this wonderful reality of why you being high priest is so important and how you do that and the qualifications that you meet uh, and how great you are are all things that are not only important but applicable to our daily lives today, Lord. And I just pray that we would understand the kind a high priest we have and be encouraged by the fact that we can come boldly to you, that you are a high priest who is compassionate, that you understand and sympathize and are compassionate towards the weaknesses that we have, Lord. And we are so grateful for that because we are weak and we need someone who understands the weaknesses of this life, the temptations that we go through. And we are so grateful that you are the God who knows that, but you are also the God who overcame all of those temptations and all of those weaknesses and were always obedient. But you also gave yourself to pay for all the times that we were disobedient. And so we are so grateful that you are the perfect high priest who made the ultimate sacrifice for us. And so I just pray, Lord, that we would never seek to be the author of our own salvation or sanctification, that we would never seek to be our own high priest, but that we would recognize you and you alone are in that role for a reason because you are the best qualified and we are the most blessed if we will just accept you in that role for us. And so we just ask, Lord, that you would just encourage us this week, help us to know that no matter what we're going through, you, the compassionate high priest, are there every day for us to help us through what we're dealing with. And we just thank you for who you are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a couple of announcements before the worship team comes up and closes in a song. Uh, men, this Tuesday is our normal time that we would get together, the third Tuesday of the month, but we're going to do something a little different. We're going to have a, a kind of a Christmas party, as you could say, for us men. You know, we're going to have a nice meal together. We're going to have some games and things, and so uh, we're going to start at 7. Typically, we start at 7.30, so it's a, a little bit earlier. Uh, so my house, 7 o'clock, come on out. Uh, we'll have a good time together. Uh, this Thursday, as I mentioned last week, um, there are several people in our church who, because of COVID, they can't get out, they can't come, and so we just wanted to do something special and uh, we wanted to make sure that all of them were okay with it and some of them are okay with us coming uh, to their you know front yard and just singing some Christmas carols to them as they you know kind of keep some distance and listen and so uh, we're going to be doing that this Thursday and we're going to meet right here in the parking lot at 5:45, 45 uh, and then travel to you know the houses that we'll go to after that and on the back there is a list of names of people who haven't been able to come out for a bit and I just encourage you, you can take that list and write uh, a Christmas card to them, and we will make sure it gets to them. So if you can't come and sing with us, you know, if you get that card to me, I'll make sure it gets to them, Uh, and if you come sing with us, then you can give that card in person. Uh, But it'd just be a nice thing just to write uh, some encouragement to those who haven't been able to be out uh, with us for a while. So um, those names are there on the uh, entryway, and if you can come Thursday, 745, we'll be singing Christmas carols. And then Friday nights, so we got a lot going on this week. Uh, we're gonna have a fellowship potluck night at the Leecones' house. Uh it starts at six. And so just bring uh whatever is your favorite dish or dessert to share. Uh, and it's just gonna be a night of uh fellowship and enjoyment with one another. And so if you can make that Friday night at six at the Leecones, And just to put in your calendar, uh, we will have a Christmas Eve service. It's gonna be here. Uh Christmas Eve, which will be a Thursday, and it's going to start at 5 uh, p.m. And so uh, we'd love for you to be able to join us with that. And so uh, those are the announcements for this week, so I want to have the worship team come on up, and we'll close in a song of worship.